Hey, welcome back to Book. This is Book, a Bible podcast for everybody, and I am Josh Way. This is the podcast that explores the content of the Judeo-Christian Bible with an emphasis on history and literature. And today's show is part two of our look at the Gospel of Matthew, the first book in the Greek New Testament. I'm going to assume you've read or listened to part one at book.joshway.com. Matthew's is one of four gospel texts, interwoven collections of stories and traditions about the life of Jesus, which were produced by four different communities of early Christian believers some decades after Jesus' death. Each gospel tells the story in its own style and with its own emphases. Small details and large themes are often notably, sometimes problematically, different from one gospel to the next. Matthew's is considered by many to be the most Jewish of the Gospels, and in part one, we saw how the author used the first four chapters to establish Jesus as Israel's long-awaited Messiah, even before the story had properly begun. Today, we'll look at Matthew's account of the message, ministry, arrest, death, and resurrection of the adult Jesus. After all of that dense and complex introductory material, there's something refreshing about opening up Matthew chapter 5 and meeting Jesus himself by way of a three-chapter collection of sayings, teachings, and parables, collectively known as the Sermon on the Mount. And before we even get to the content of the sermon, there's something important and obvious we need to acknowledge about Jesus right away. He is presented here in Matthew as a Jewish prophet. There's nothing controversial about that statement, but given the many things people believe about Jesus and the often intense ways in which they believe and defend them, it seems helpful to ground ourselves in the basic reality presented here by Matthew, that Jesus is a man from Nazareth near Galilee in first century Judea, historically known as the land of Israel. He is in this way, just like the great prophets of Israel and Judah, whom we met in the Hebrew Bible. And in fact, Jesus' words and deeds bear a striking resemblance to those old prophets, especially Jeremiah. If you're unsure what to do with Jesus historically, this is a good place to start. He is a prophet with a message for Israel, a message that is every bit as politically and religiously charged as those of his forebearers. And what is that message? He announces it succinctly in Matthew chapter 4, verse 17. Repent, he said, for the kingdom of heaven is here. A simple and straightforward statement, and yet one that's become overly familiar and infused with less than helpful modern religious assumptions. For modern American Christians in particular, repenting has to do with casting off personal mortal sins, and the kingdom of heaven is the place in the sky where you go when you die, if you've been good or forgiven enough to make the grade. Placed back in their original first-century Jewish context, these words mean something different. Repent literally means to become pensive again, or repensive, thinking in a new way. And the kingdom of heaven, called kingdom of God in the other Gospels, is not a medieval-style realm somewhere in the clouds where God lives. It's the kingship of God, the reign of God come to earth. We remember from part one that this is exactly what Jesus' fellow Jews have been waiting for for centuries, for God to return to their land and set up his kingdom forever. Jesus says this is happening now and Israel must repent or learn to think in a new way to get ready for the kingdom. 
That's what the Sermon on the Mount is all about, the details of Jesus' new way to think about being Israel. The impressive thing about the sermon, which is probably not a real sermon delivered all at once, but a survey of sayings and traditions attributed to Jesus and collected by the author or editor of Matthew, is how well it functions as both a universal teaching on ethics and as a very specific critique from within of Judaism from one of its own prophets. These are some of the most memorable and beloved words in the whole Bible, and it's easy to see why. In chapter 5, Jesus describes what life in heaven's kingdom come to earth looks like. Blessed are the poor in spirit. The kingdom of heaven belongs to you. Blessed are the mourners. You're going to be comforted. Blessed are the meek. You're going to inherit the earth. Blessed are people who hunger and thirst for God's justice. You're going to be satisfied. Blessed are the merciful. You're going to receive mercy yourselves. Blessed are the pure in heart. You're going to see God. Blessed are the peacemakers. You'll be called God's children. The values of God's kingdom, according to Jesus, are in fact the inverse of the values of earthly political regimes. In a kingdom ruled by God, the poor own everything. The meek inherit everything. Purity and peace win the day over power and violence. These are beautiful thoughts, but they carry an implicit critique. Jesus is accusing his fellow children of Israel of embodying the politics of power and domination in their quest for the kingdom, instead of trusting in the way of God. If they're not careful, they'll turn into the very kind of monster they're trying to overcome, namely the Roman Empire. Jesus goes on to talk about the Torah, the Jewish law, and what he has to say might surprise you. Jesus does not say, I am here to found the true religion, so you must all stop being Jews, become Christians, and start going to church. In fact, he says this, Do not suppose that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets, that's Judaism. I didn't come to destroy them, I came to fulfill them. And then he says this, Yes, let me tell you, unless your law-keeping is far superior to that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never get into the kingdom of heaven. In Matthew's presentation, Jesus is not the founder of a new religion, but the true spokesperson for an ancient one. If his fellow Jews want to enter the kingdom, that is, if they want to participate in what God is doing to establish his reign on earth, they had better double down on their obedience to the Torah. But just as Jesus subverted the meaning of political power in his statements of blessing above, he also offers a new way to think about the Torah laws themselves. This is chapter 5, verse 21. You heard it was said, you shall not murder, and anyone who commits murder will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Anyone who uses abusive language will be liable to the law court. And anyone who says, you idiot, will be liable to the fires of Gehenna. Jesus makes several statements with this format. You heard it was said, and then a quote from the Torah, followed by, but I say to you, and his own radical interpretation. In this case, he takes the classic commandment against murder and reorients it. It's no longer a boundary marker saying, do not cross this line. It's a relationship, an orientation. It says that it's how you treat your brother or sister that matters, not just that you manage not to murder them. Jesus tackles several other topics, sex, money, religion, in the same way, each time emphasizing the human relationship over the letter of the law. 
This, Jesus is saying, was always the point of the law, that we would love each other. Of course, this is a message that's as radical today as it was then, and yet we saw many of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible making a similar point. Now, Jesus' references to the fires of Gehenna are another element that has been often and brutally misunderstood over the centuries, but it's actually something I'm going to address at length in a separate podcast supplement that will come out soon after this episode. So stay tuned for that. Now, there are many more teachings of Jesus in these chapters. The Lord's Prayer for the Coming of the Kingdom, Commandments Not to Worry, Not to Judge Others, and a final warning that very few will actually choose to follow Jesus on this narrow way that he is describing. And after three solid chapters of the words of the Messiah, Matthew changes gears and gives us two chapters describing his deeds. Chapters 8 and 9 detail Jesus' miracles, the healings and exorcism that he performs, along with his message of the kingdom. These miracles, more appropriately called signs, are often assumed to be merely proofs of Jesus' divinity. But that's not precisely how this works. We should remember that, whatever we believe about such claims, it is not uncommon to read about prophets, teachers, or holy men performing healings and wonders in the ancient world. And the magic or divinity of these acts was not the point, it was the specific meaning of the act that mattered. In this way, Jesus' miraculous deeds make perfect sense in the context of his prophetic message. They are all signs of the kingdom that he is announcing. When Jesus heals the blind person or the leper, he isn't just proving something extraordinary about himself. He's making these individuals whole again and, more important, returning them to the society and religion which would have excluded them for their maladies. And in doing so, by the way, he is bypassing the priests and the temple. This is part of what's going to make Jesus so controversial. If Jesus' miracles are proving anything, it's that the kingdom is truly at hand. He is making Israel whole again, one citizen at a time, as a preview of what is to come. Even the casting out of demons or evil spirits, a strange and foreign idea to most of us, makes a certain kind of contextual sense within his kingdom message. This is particularly true in an episode in chapter 9, where Jesus crosses over into Gentile territory and casts demons out of two men living among the tombs. Demons which enter into a herd of pigs, causing them to run off a cliff. A crazy episode to our eyes, to be sure, but with at least two strands of clear symbolic meaning. First, Jesus is outside of the land of Israel, outside of the covenant. He's in a graveyard, surrounded by demons and pigs. This is the least Jewish environment in which a Jew could find himself. And yet, instead of becoming unclean or being destroyed, Jesus exercises authority, even in this unfriendly place, and casts out the demon. As for the demons taking control of a herd of pigs, you couldn't write a more pointed political cartoon about what Jews thought of their Roman overlords. The account ends somewhat humorously with the Gentile residents begging Jesus to leave their region and go back home. In addition to his many signs and deeds, more than we could catalog here, Matthew tells us that Jesus calls 12 men to be his followers. These include Matthew himself, a tax collector, brothers called Peter and Andrew, fishermen, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Philip, Bartholomew, Thomas, James, Thaddeus, Simon, and Judas Iscariot. Now, there's nothing odd in context about a prophet, rabbi, or guru with a school of followers in the ancient world, but it's the details that make Jesus' crew extraordinary. 
Jesus calls 12 followers in keeping with his bid to personally embody Israel with its 12 tribes named for 12 patriarchs. But it's also the nature of his followers that is remarkable. Instead of surrounding himself with administrators, politicians, scribes, and other students of Jewish religion and law, Jesus calls a bunch of average working-class guys with jobs as humble as fishing and as unpopular as tax collecting. This is itself another symbolic act of how the kingdom of God would continue to thwart everyone's expectations and turn human values and expectations inside out. In chapter 10, Jesus sends these 12 disciples out, granting them the authority to do what he has been doing, announce the kingdom in words and miraculous deeds. Things are going great. Crowds of people respond to the message of Jesus and his disciples, but some shadows begin to creep over the proceedings. Jesus routinely offends the religious authorities who are threatened by his radical and authoritative teaching, and they accuse him of breaking the law and even of being in league with the devil. Jesus deflects these attacks, but confides in his followers that he expects something drastic and grave to befall him. In chapter 13, Matthew relates a series of Jesus' short parables. Parables are little self-contained symbolic fictions which illustrate some truth about real life. Jesus' parables are about the kingdom of heaven, and though they are often interpreted by modern Christians as little teachings about the church as it waits for Jesus' second coming, the texts themselves are better understood as stories of God's return to Israel through his representative Jesus. For example, there are parables about farmers who sow seeds and reap harvests, who represent Israel's God, Yahweh, sowing the seeds of the kingdom through the prophets and then returning through his agent, the Messiah, to collect the fruit. The kingdom is also compared to a treasure buried in a field, a fisherman's net bringing in a huge catch. In each parable, the product of some planting, hunting, or some type of work is harvested, counted, or cataloged. God has come back to Israel and he's looking for fruit. When he doesn't find any, things don't go well. After some more miracles, parables, and tense encounters with religious leaders, climactic events begin to transpire, and Matthew's gospel moves into its final act. In chapter 16, Jesus has an intense conversation with his disciple Peter. What about you, he asked them. Who do you say that I am? Simon Peter answered, You're the Messiah, he said. You're the Son of the living God. God's blessings upon you, Simon, son of John, answered Jesus. But almost immediately, this happens. From then on, Jesus began to explain to his disciples that he would have to go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, chief priests, and scribes, and be killed and be raised on the third day. Peter took him and began to tell him off. That's the last thing God would want, Master, he said. That's never, ever going to happen to you. Jesus turned on Peter. Get behind me, Satan. You're trying to trip me up. You're not looking at things like God does. You're looking at things like a mere mortal. Jesus' followers are already convinced that he is the Messiah, the promised king of Israel. But for that very reason, they can't fathom his own premonitions that he has to suffer and die at the hands of the authorities. And who can blame them? In their eyes, Jesus is basically predicting his own failure. Then, in chapter 17, Jesus takes a few of his closest followers up onto a mountain, another one, and is transformed before their eyes into a figure of blinding light and beauty. He's joined by Elijah and Moses, who sort of mill around and chat with him. Suddenly, a voice booms from above, This is my dear son. I am delighted with him. Pay attention to him. 
This is one of those sudden, stark, supernatural episodes that thwarts our understanding. But for now, just hold the image in your mind, and we'll come back to this. Chapter 21 begins the series of events we know as Holy Week, the final week of Jesus' earthly life. It begins with the prophet riding into the capital city of Jerusalem on a donkey to shouts of Hosanna, or save us in Aramaic, from an ecstatic crowd. This event has at least a twofold meaning. Number one, it's another one of Matthew's somewhat labored fulfillments of Hebrew Bible prophecy. I say labored because the passage Matthew wants to fulfill from Zechariah 9 says that Zion's king will come riding on, quote, an ass, yes, on a foal, it's young. Matthew isn't quite sure how to make this work, so he actually has Jesus riding on an adult donkey and its foal at the same time. I'd like to see that painting. But number two, this is another symbolic prophetic action, a nonviolent mirror to the type of Roman imperial procession that would have passed through these same city gates around the same time. It was the time of Passover, and Rome always made a big show of their power during the religious festivals of their conquered peoples, lest they get too excited and decide to revolt. In his so-called triumphal entry into Jerusalem, Jesus is affirmed symbolically as Israel's Messiah, but he is also affirmed as the anti-Caesar, the true and humble Lord of the world over against the power-hungry tyrant. Once in Jerusalem, Jesus performs two final symbolic actions, one of which probably seals his fate. First, Jesus enters the temple and throws out all of the merchants selling sacrificial animals to the worshippers and tourists. He overturns their tables and quotes the Hebrew Bible, My house will be called a house of prayer, but you've made it a brigand's lair. He then proceeds to perform some of his trademark healings inside the temple courtyard. This throws the crowd of onlookers into a tizzy and mobilizes the priests and scribes to finally do something about their Jesus problem. Later, outside of the temple, Jesus comes upon a fig tree with no fruit. He curses it and it withers instantly. The second act is an interpretation of the first. The temple is supposed to produce the fruit of justice, but it bears none, so it must be shut down. Both acts are merely symbols of Jesus' greater kingdom announcement, though the temple action is real enough to set some dangerous gears into motion. Before the events that we know as the Passion of the Messiah, Jesus has a few more unpleasant run-ins with the scribes and Pharisees and offers up a few more parables and teachings. In chapter 24, he gives his final speech in the Gospel of Matthew, and it's a doozy. Jesus climbs up on yet another mountain, the Mount of Olives, and starts talking really funny, saying things like this, verse 29. After the suffering that those days will bring, the sun will turn to darkness, and the moon won't give its light. The stars will fall out of heaven, and the powers of heaven will shake. And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in heaven, and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. They will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of heaven with power and great glory. And also this, verse 40. On that day there will be two people working in the field. One will be taken, the other will be left. There will be two women grinding corn in the mill. One will be taken, the other one left. So be alert. You don't know what day your master will come. Jesus uses apocalyptic language and imagery, borrowing liberally from the prophets of the Hebrew Bible, to describe what Christian culture has traditionally conceived as the end times, or the rapture, the return of Jesus at the end of the world that's still in our, some would say, near future. However, 
it's not quite that simple or clear as we read this in verse 34. I'm telling you the truth. This generation won't be gone before these things happen. Whatever it is that Jesus is describing, it's something he expects to take place within his own generation. There's so much to say about Jesus' little apocalypse, as this is sometimes called, and maybe I'll devote a supplement or a future episode to that complicated discussion. But for now, in the interest of time, I'll just say that Jesus, like the great prophets of Israel before him, is offering up his ultimate prophecy, a warning to Jerusalem to change her ways or face destruction. And while that is not how this passage has been traditionally interpreted, it is worth acknowledging that Jerusalem was in fact flattened by Rome in 70 AD within Jesus' own generation. Now that may not mean a whole lot to modern Westerners, but it was surely the end of the world for the Jews living at that time. In chapter 26, one of Jesus' own followers, Judas Iscariot, goes to the chief priests and offers to hand Jesus over for the price of 30 pieces of silver. Soon after that, the whole gang celebrates Passover with Jesus, who takes the occasion to make one last cryptic prediction of his own death. He reappropriates the already symbol-laden elements of the Seder meal to make his point. He breaks the bread, the symbol of the manna, God's life-sustaining provision for Israel in the desert, and announces, this is my body, take it and eat it. He then pours out a cup of wine, probably the cup of blessing, and says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. This language comes from Jeremiah chapter 31, where the prophet imagines a day when God will perform a new act of salvation for Israel and establish a new covenant with her. Jesus announces that these things are happening now in what will prove to be his final hours. Judas slips out early, and Jesus takes his eleven remaining followers to a public place called Gethsemane, where he goes off alone to pray that God might spare him from the fate which now seems inevitable. He comes back to find his followers asleep, and they wake up just in time to see Jesus get arrested by a group of chief priests and elders led by Judas. Jesus is first interrogated by the high priest Caiaphas, who accuses him of threatening to destroy the temple and of claiming to be the Messiah. Jesus is mostly silent, offering only cryptic answers that neither affirm nor deny the charges. He does manage to quote Daniel chapter 7 again, the, the bit about the Son of Man coming on the clouds, a move which results in the high priest tearing his robe and the elders condemning him to death. Meanwhile, his closest follower Peter Stunned and horrified at what is happening, denies even knowing Jesus. The prophet's earthly family is abandoning him in his most dire hour. And Judas, racked with guilt, returns the blood money to the priests and runs off and hangs himself. The Judean officials agree that Jesus should die, but they lack the authority to execute criminals themselves, so they take Jesus before the local Roman governor, a man named Pilate. Rome isn't interested in messiahs or prophecies from the book of Daniel, but they don't like wannabe kings, and so Jesus is presented as an insurgent who is trying to set himself up as the king of the Jews. Pilate's wife is apparently aware of Jesus and sympathetic to his cause, so she pleads with her husband to spare this innocent man. Pilate is confused and conflicted, so he lets the crowd decide. He invokes a tradition whereby the people may request the release of a single prisoner on the occasion of a holiday, and the choice is between Jesus of Nazareth, the non-violent prophet, and Jesus Barabbas, a violent insurgent. 
the crowd chooses Barabbas, and he is released. Jesus is stripped, mocked, beaten, scourged, and crucified between two brigands at a place called Golgotha, the skull place. Crucifixion was a brutal, slow, and public method of execution, and one that Rome reserved for rebels and revolutionaries, anyone who represented a threat or challenge to the authority of the empire. At noon, darkness falls over the region, and a few hours later, Jesus calls out, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, an Aramaic quote from Psalm 22 that translates, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then Jesus dies, and as he does, the earth shakes, and a stunned Roman centurion declares, This man really was the Son of God. Now, recall the transfiguration of Jesus back in chapter 17? The crucifixion scene stands in stark, intentional contrast to that one, and the two images enhance and interpret one another. On that previous mountaintop, flanked by Moses and Elijah, Jesus was revealed in supernatural light and power, and something like the voice of God declared, This is my Son. Here at the end, on a grim hillside flanked by two criminals shrouded in cold darkness, Jesus is revealed in sorrow and weakness, and it is the voice of a Roman soldier, his allegiance sworn to the emperor, the son of the divine Caesar, that declares Jesus to be the true son of God. Matthew's gospel has made a very powerful and artful juxtaposition, not just between the transfiguration and the crucifixion, but between the power of organized violence versus the power of submission and love. Jesus practices what he preaches to its logical end, and it costs him his life. Jesus is buried in the tomb of a wealthy sympathizer named Joseph of Arimathea, a very unusual fate for a victim of crucifixion, but a necessary part of the story that Matthew must tell. Of course we know that each of the Gospels ends with the discovery by two women, two days hence, of an empty tomb, vacated by the resurrected Jesus. What is interesting is the very different ways each Gospel presents the event, and the different strands of meaning they assign to it. In none of the Gospels do we actually have an account of Jesus being raised from the dead and walking out of the tomb. It's always off-screen, and we discover the aftermath along with the first eyewitnesses. In Matthew 28, the account is surprisingly brief, as Mary Magdalene, a female follower of Jesus, and a friend come to pay their respects at Jesus' tomb. When they arrive, the earth shakes and an angel appears, rolls the sealed entrance of the tomb back, and shows them how very empty it is. He tells them that Jesus has been raised and that they should return to the other followers and tell them all to meet their master back in Galilee. Matthew's gospel ends with five short verses in which the risen Jesus, whose physical condition is not described, appears to the eleven and gives them these instructions. All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me, so you must go and make all the nations into disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teach them to observe everything I have commanded you, and look, I am with you every single day to the very end of the age. Some feel that these last words of Jesus sound so much like the teachings of the church in the centuries after Jesus, and so little like his words in the rest of the gospel, that they suggest that they were a later addition tacked on by editors. Well, while we have every reason to believe that the manuscripts of all the Christian writings were redacted and tweaked as they were transmitted from one community to the next, we have no specific reason other than vague suspicion to make that sort of claim about a passage like this. It's more helpful, I think, to try and cast off our presuppositions as best we can and try to understand it in context of everything that's come before.
If a prophet is killed by earthly powers and raised back to life by God, then it's fair to say that he or she has been vindicated, and their message has been vindicated, and that authority has been given unto them. Jesus claims this authority and uses it to send out his followers to make more followers from all the nations. In their day, this probably meant the Near East and Asia Minor. He tells them to baptize these new followers, just as John baptized the Israelites and Jesus himself, to signify the repentance of an old way of life and commitment to a new way of life. And what is that new way? It's the Jesus way, the way of the kingdom of God, where peace, love, and forgiveness rule instead of violence and fear. And I think that's the key to getting Jesus right, or at least to getting Matthew's presentation right. Too often the post-resurrection traditions about Jesus and these instructions to baptize new disciples, called the Great Commission, are detached from the message of Jesus in his earthly life and prophetic campaign. But if we keep the Sermon on the Mount fresh in our minds, then we realize that Jesus isn't calling for the forced proliferation of cold, conforming religion, but the spread of the radical message of selfless love and reckless forgiveness. These are Jesus' commandments, the rules by which his followers live. It is tragically ironic when his most devout followers seem to forget that love, faith, and vulnerability are the true heart of Jesus, not domination and condemnation. And that is the Gospel of Matthew. Now that we've read a complete and very long Gospel, we can look at the others in a more focused way, paying attention to the differences, harmonies, and even the discrepancies. The early Christian communities which produced these texts all had their own ways of interpreting Jesus' message, death, and resurrection, and it will be our pleasure to discover those together. But for now, this has been Book, a Bible podcast for everybody, and I have been Josh Way. It is good to be back. If you enjoyed this podcast, I encourage you to share it with your online friends and family. If you have any comments, questions, or constructive feedback, you can email me at book at joshway.com. You can also leave a voicemail at 801-760-3013, and I'll try to respond on the podcast. Read the book blog and find lots more content at book.joshway.com. That's it for me, Bible Pals. I'll catch you next time. <laughs>